This week on the My Life of Golf podcast, we talk to PGA Golf Pro and current Cobra Puma Golf fitting rep, Tim Wise. Tim takes us on his journey from boy in the bush in country Victoria right through to being invited into the Australian Institute of Sport. He shares with us some of his time on the Australian PGA Tour and some of the highs and some of the lows. We also discover that Tim has a world ranking in cricket and he shared the bench as 12th man for the Indian cricket team in front of Sachin Tendulkar. I know, crazy, right? And on the eve of the launch of the new Cobra F9 product, Tim shares with us some of the benefits, features, and, and what we can expect in the F9. We also talk a little bit about one-length irons, a bit of Bryson DeChambeau, and a bit of Ricky Fowler. So it's a wide-ranging discussion from a really interesting guy. Hang on to the end of the podcast, and after that, we have a bit of a deep dive into the new F9. Okay, sit back, relax, enjoy. Thanks for listening. Appreciate your time. Hit the like button, subscribe, join us on the My Love of Golf podcast. Cool. Tim Wise, welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. How are you, mate? I'm fantastic, Roscoe. Thanks for having me. Mate, it's absolute privilege. Um, so I think we're up to episode number seven now, the first one for 2019 that we're releasing, and it's great to have you on. Now, I'll let you do the bulk of your introduction of yourself, but Tim, you are my Cobra guy, and uh, well, we've known each other for a good few years now, and you know, I always enjoy the time that I get to spend with you because I always get to learn something. I get to learn something about golf. I get to learn something about some people in the industry. I get to learn something more about you. So hopefully on this uh, podcast, we can talk a little bit about all of those things that you know, get to see, and uh, and your journey into, into this world of uh, professional golf and being a professional in the golf industry. So mate, the Tim Wise story, where did it all begin? Where did the Tim Wise journey begin all those years ago? Which is not so many, not, not as many years ago as me, but where did it begin? Pretty, pretty close. Well, I'm a, I'm a country boy um, and, and grew up playing a number of different sports um, from a sporting family, a sporting father, sporting brothers and a sporting mother. So um, I, I suppose I didn't have much choice about what I was going to happen. I wasn't going to be uh, doing anything except for playing sports. So um, yeah, growing up in the country, um, I suppose my primary school ages is down in the Western District in Camperdown. Uh, and I played football and I played basketball and I played cricket um, up until um, year grade six. And I moved, we moved to the north of the state, uh, to Benalla. Um, and I started playing golf when I was in Benalla as well. How, how old were you when you started playing golf, mate? Uh, 12. 12. So yeah. fairly, you know, back a while ago, that was pretty much, you know, the year that you sort of started to get into golf when you were a kid, if I remember rightly. You know, I didn't think we had the 
the fives and the fours and the sixes and the sevens back then. They certainly didn't have junior clubs. Yeah. Um, you know, cut down clubs and half sets and things like that. And, you know, cut down dynamic gold, <laughs> 120 gram shafts yeah. <laughs> that became even stiffer and, you know, using golf clubs that weren't designed to get the ball in the air very easily. So uh, it's certainly, you know, chalk and cheese from then to today what the kids have got access to which is why I think the kids can start younger now because back then as a six or seven year old you'd really be struggling to be able to pick up a golf club and swing it properly not if you're using the Aussie pick worse that I use mate <laughs> hey, um, so a sporting family that's it that's interesting that's that's so dad's sport what was what was he into? Uh, dad was a, a cricketer fast bowler um, and played baseball as well and a Good footballer as well. Base, uh, baseball in Camperdown. Baseball in actually played baseball in Colac, so he had to move to go had to travel to Colac, which is about half an hour to play baseball. Um, and again, he played baseball in a couple of places before then. Um, being in the police force, he moved around a bit. Um, and yeah, so he played baseball, and he played cricket, and he played he batted like he was playing baseball because he just tried to hit it as hard as he could. Um, and he was a fast bowler in cricket, but never a pitcher in baseball. Did you play footy? You played yeah, footy. I played football. Um, so I played football up until uh, I was 17. Um, I lost uh, five grand finals in a row, and then we won a grand final, finally, um, under 17s. And then I, uh, I broke my thumb the first game of the next year. And got told that I had to make a choice between cricket and golf. Oh, sorry, golf and football and cricket and basketball. All of those. Because of the thumb? Because of the thumb. Yeah, right. Um, and I was playing um, Victorian representatives underage uh, sides in golf by then. So um, football was my passion. Football and cricket were my passion. Um, my brother was a really good footballer, a uh, star footballer. And um, so, yeah, football was where my passion lied and uh, cricket was probably second and golf was probably third. Just, it just so happened that my golfing ability, I don't think, I, I don't think it was better than my cricket ability or my football ability, but um, I think I took my opportunities in golf more than I did in the other sports. So when those opportunities presented, what, what did that look like as a young kid in the, in the country? So you're in Benalla by this yep. stage, yeah? Yep. What did, you know, the knock on the door, Timmy, we want you down in the smoke. Yeah. So, um, like? we, uh, we used to have a, a Coca-Cola junior squad, um, which was basically, you know, all the juniors who played the tournament and, my parents used to drive me down to, to Melbourne over the school holidays and we'd play some junior tournaments down in Melbourne. Um, and and from then, you know, we were in, I was in a junior squad. I played in a, in a couple of country junior teams. Um, and then in 93, I played in the Victorian junior team. I played in the Victorian schoolboys team and I represented Victoria at the Greg Norman Junior Classic on the Gold Coast as well. So actually all three of those were in Queensland. So I went to Queensland three times in one year. Um, and, you know, 
again, once I was doing that and I wasn't doing that in cricket or football, um, it was, you know, okay, maybe I need to concentrate on golf. So I'm doing the quick sums, 93, and I'm, I'm trying to rack my brains back then, but to me, that suggests that you would have been playing in and around and are with some pretty well-known golfing figures. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So um, so I remember the junior team, the reserve for the junior team was Jeff Ogilvie. So Jeff was, he missed out. He was the last person to miss out on the, the spot in the, the junior team to go to Queensland. Uh, the funny thing about it is that I think the guys from the junior state team now, in my role now, I deal with... I think four of the junior team who are now PGA members somewhere around the state. So um, it's a you know from that junior team, it's it's interesting that a lot of them have continued in the golf industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the Australian Institute of Sport the year after that in 1994, um, and from that, from six guys who were again I would say elite golfers. Um, in that time, there's only two of them that are still playing golf. As in, and earning money from playing golf, is that right? Or uh, just playing, just playing, or golf, just playing at all. golf at all? Yeah. Right. Um, so um, with Brendan Jones and Matthew Goggin, so, um, who have both had great careers. Yeah. Um, and even from the girls in that squad, there were six girls, none of them are still playing. Hmm. So to have you know, four from the junior team who were PGA members and actively amongst it, I think it's pretty amazing. I laugh about it when I see them and, you know, um, that we've known each other, you know, and grown up for a long time together. Um, yeah, it's been interesting. Who are, who are the girl? Who are some of the ladies? Um, so the, the girls, Simone Williams was, uh, she was the best player in my year, um, she was playing in the Australian team, and so she was playing number two behind Kari Webb. Um, and Simone, you know, she played Australian teams, and she saw her life and went and, you know, made her, her life other ways. Yeah. Um, Sky Ferno from New South Wales, who was up your way, she was actually Tamworth. Um, she's not playing at all. You know, I still speak to, to these people as well. Um, Michelle Ellis played on the US tour for a little bit. Um, uh, Kate McIntosh, um, who's now uh, Kate Nolan, um, and Kate's obviously a PGA member and uh, does a great job at Albert Park, so I still see Katie. She's probably the only one that's in the golf industry. Um, And, yeah, and so the guys, you know, Brad Meadows, who was an absolute gun, Um, Brendan, Maddie Goggin, um, Sean Wiggett, who was a star from Queensland, and Greg Rawson, who was a star from New South Wales, so uh, we certainly had fun in the in the AIS golf program. Sean Wiggett was a blonde head fellow, wasn't he from Queensland? He yes, he was. He's got no hair. He's like me now. He's like us, like, I guess. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, Sean Wiggett stayed at my house. Did he really? My mum and dad. Yeah, he was uh, billeted. Oh, Jack Newton. Yeah, he was billeted in Cessnock by uh, the Flanagan family as. Uh, as were a number of uh, top-level golfers back in the day. So I've forgotten about Sean Wiggett, stayed uh, at mum and dad's house. Not sure if I was still in t- at home then, but definitely he was there, young, 
young blonde fella from Queensland. Uh, what part of Queensland was he from? Uh, he's from uh, Gladstone. Or yeah, Gladstone. Uh, 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 I was going to yeah. say Rockhampton. No, he's from Gladstone. Gladstone, the island off. Yeah, one of the islands off there. Yeah, there you go. No, I remember Sean. He was a great kid. Yeah. So um. So we've got into the AIS. You know, we're doing all the high performance work, and then turn, um, turn pro. Simple. It's not quite as simple as that. I actually made a lot of changes in the AIS. Um, I went from an overlap grip to interlock. Um, actually, it went the other way. It went from interlock to overlap. Um, and just for some reasons, there was you know, things that were going on. I was very natural. I'd only had limited access to coaching up until then. Um, so, you know, learning new things. And I... I went to overlap and really struggled to to do things. Um, so even just what some people and some coaches just think are a relatively small change made a massive difference to your game. Yeah, it made a massive dis- difference to my game. And it's interesting that, you know, if I think of two guys that interlock, I think of Tiger and Jack, and they've both been pretty good. Mm. Um, so it's interesting that no coaches really teach interlock um and i got taught out of it so um so did, so did i you know even you know a few years before you like i think i think the natural dominance is for everyone to interlock at the start and then they get taught out of it and i remember not really ever understanding that and is it just one of those things that have become like just the norm in golf to just to go oh you don't do it that way you do it this way and is, is there really a good reason for it that's you raise that and, and I think about it in my context and some of the new golfers that I see now that all want to interlock. They all just naturally want to do that. Yeah. Is there a reason to change? So the, the theory behind me changing from interlock to overlap was when I interlocked, too much pressure went on my interlocking fingers, which meant that the, the pressure um, and the control was in a small part of it rather than being in my index finger on my right hand and my little finger on my left hand. Does that make sense? So if I can get the the control from here and here rather than from here and here, I then have more control of the club. Mm-hmm. Um, it made sense at the time. And, uh, you know, again, I, I go to interlock now and it feels ridiculous. Uh, I'm trying to do it. But um, so so that was, again, for me... I was probably behind most people in that I hadn't had much access. So Mm. I was learning along the way. I had a year in the AIS. Um, I had access to coaching after then um, and was finding my way. Like, you know, I was trying to work and trying um, trying to play and play amateur golf. And, you know, they didn't have the structure back then that they do now again. Um, And, again... By this stage, I, I really loved golf and I could see a career in golf. Um, and so I worked doing odd jobs and playing um, and played my amateur golf. And I was a member at, uh, at Commonwealth Golf Club at this stage and playing pennant there. And, you know, I, I probably was gliding along without enough structure of what I needed to do to turn pro. Um and I remember I moved to to Woodlands Golf Club uh, in 1997 um, after a night at the pub and 
someone telling me they were going to get me into woodlands if I wanted to and I probably had a little bit too much to drink at the time and they said I'll get you in tomorrow if you want and I said yeah de deal and he turned up the next morning with the forms and into woodlands I went um, and it was a good change for me because the we had probably five or six guys at Commonwealth who were good golfers they're all probably a little bit older than me but good golfers and we had a good pennant team at Woodlands there was 30 really good golfers all around the same age as me um, and we had something like 21 people in a six-year period turn pro or trainee. Yeah, wow. Um, and just a, a huge group of kids who, I suppose, made each other better, um, enjoyed off the golf course as well as on the golf course together, um, you know, and I suppose a great time of my life as well, in, you know, in an area, because golf's such an individual sport, that was more a team atmosphere and nearly like a football club in that you've got a big group of people trying to make you better. Yep. So a lot of competition for yeah. pennant, pennant spots. And uh, where, where was Woodlands in the pennant uh, uh, machine then? We were Division One, and we won the won the final in uh, in 99 and 2000. Wow. So if you're winning Division One Melbourne Metro pennant, you know, you're pretty much playing at the highest level that you can get in the amateur world Yep. before having to decide what you're going to do with your golf. Is this a fun game or is it something they're going to take a little bit more seriously and try and, and make a living out of it, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And again, I'd started to, you know, I was working full-time and by this time I had a child in 1998, my first, first kid, um, and I was working full-time so I didn't have... I wasn't playing many tournaments, um, yep. Ivo Widdens, but the, so I'd play the main ones and I was starting to play well and I understood my game really well. And I think, you know, that's important. Once you understand your game, you can then do what you need to do. And I, I started to kind of understand what I needed to improve to be able to go to the next level. So in this period between AIS and then now moving back into the amateur ranks and playing, you know, top level amateur get amateur golf, you know, some Ivos playing Divi 1 pennant. Ivos, for, for those of you from interstate or, or around the traps, Ivo Witten is, you know, the Victorian Golf uh, Association's, you know, top-level amateur events. You know, they have a, what is it, a monthly or fortnightly, you know, stroke play event, you know, usually maximum sort of four handicap and down, um, you know, little mini amateur tour, and I'm sure they exist in other parts of the world and in Australia has different names. But um, were you getting coached you know were you seeking out coaching during this phase you know, yeah I was, st I was still getting coaching from through the AIS right um so you know a part of the AIS was that you know, once you're there you're always an AIS alumni and mm -hmm. um you have access to to things when you need them so um we're still getting coaching um and and again that helped me understand my game a lot better than when I came down from the country who were the who were the AIS gurus back then? Uh, so Ross Herbert was he was the head coach. Oh, what a um, legend! Yeah, and Ross and he's obviously his short game um, guru, and you see guys like you know Brett Rumford who went through Roscoe, and you know he's one of the best bunker players in the world, and you know I put that down to again understanding things that Roscoe taught him, and then the things that that Rummy does now is is pretty unbelievable because he understands. You know, how a sand wedge works, how wedges work. 
and what you're supposed to do. So once you understand that, I think you can do things in a bunker. You can do things on the golf course. When you understand what you're trying to do, the game becomes easier. Now we'll talk about it soon, but this man knows how to work something in a bunker. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, so the decision to go pro. Yeah. What was that decision like? So I played um, three years of, of state amateur golf. Um, and how, how old are you at this stage? So done AS, we're now three years of state amateur golf. We're in the AS alumni, so we can draw on some learning yep. from those guys, you know, when and if and, and at the get-togethers. Three yep. years since then, yeah? Yeah, so this was – so then um, I played state golf 98, 99, 2000. Uh-huh. Um, so I decided that 2001 that I would go to tour school uh, at the end of 2001. That was kind of where I was aiming at. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of had my ducks in a row. I knew what, what I was doing. Um, went to tour school in Queensland. Got through first stage pretty easily. Finished second or third. Um Go to second stage at Nudgy Golf Club um, and was an interesting event. One under through nine holes, um, stood up on the 10th tee and hit a tee shot and hit it 50 metres right. And it just felt different. And I was like, oh, it was a bit strange. Into the water. Uh, take a drop, make bogey. <clears throat> tee shot up the next, hit the same shot. I hit this shot probably five times on the back nine um, and had 76 or 77 and was like just jittery and just couldn't work out what was happening. And again, you know, you know golf for us, when it, something goes wrong on the course, it's actually hard to work out what's happened and get it out of your mind and bring it back. You know, you can, if you work, you can go back and work on it. But if it, something happens out there, it's hard to sort of, to change it on the day. So Went to the range that night. I very much know that situation. <laughs> Went to the range that night, um, worked away at it, no problems, wasn't there. First tee the next day, hit the same shot. Um, and missed my tour card. Went back home and thought, what the hell happened there? Um, and it was interesting. So on the practice fairway, it, it never came out, and it was nearly like a yip. It felt like... I, I tried to explain it to someone what was actually happening. It, it felt like I was inside out when I hit it, not that the club path or anything, that I was actually inside out and I was reverse releasing it. Um, and it was going high and right. Um, it felt like I was going to hit it low and left and I would hit it high and right. So, um, you know, I, again, I couldn't get the same feeling on the practice fairway. Um, so it was obviously a tension thing. There was a number of different things that I tried to work on. Um, so then I started teeing the ball up on the ground and I basically the next year I had the ball on the ground with my driver, hitting driver off the deck and hitting fades. And I felt like that was okay. Um, and so, I, so, so for those that are wondering, you know, what the effect of teeing the ball down with the driver, just explain that for a sec. Yeah. It, it felt like I couldn't hook it if it was on the ground, so yeah. I could actually just cut it when it was on the ground. Yeah. 
Um, so I'd just get over the top and trap it. Yeah. Um, and that was the feeling that gave me, okay, and I didn't hit this shot with irons or anything else. Um, every now and then I might get it with a fairway wood, but um, yeah, just the longer clubs. So I, I had a year back at Woodlands after tour school of playing golf and um, working in the pro shop at Woodlands. And then I went back to tour school um, at um, Peninsula Golf Club at the end of 2002. End of 2002, yep. Um, and I uh, pretty much did the same thing. I got through to the last stage um, and um, I hit a few of those shots with the driver. Um, one down, one down 15, par five. Um, and I, and I, I, I suppose I had it under control a bit more, but, um, and missed final stage by two shots. So I was kind of in a bit of nowhere land. I had put something in place this time in case and I'd actually applied for a traineeship so in case I missed um, that I I knew that I needed to have a backup plan and I'd been working um, in pro shops I'd been working at drum and golf um, and I had a, a backup plan so um, I missed tour school went straight into the Maccabi Diva years of 2003 4 and 5 um, and uh, did my traineeship, um, and I played great during my traineeship, um, which was kind of frustrating that I, both times at tour school that I hadn't been able to produce good golf. Um, and then you know, I won 10 times on the trainee circuit in my first year in 2003. So for, for those you know, thinking about becoming a pro and doing it, the, through the trainee way, you know, every was it every Monday? Every Monday. Every Monday, there's a trainee tournament of which you have to play in. Well, enough of them to maintain your scoring average. Is that right? Yeah. So there's yeah. a X amount a year, and depending on obviously if you're in the country, you don't have to play as many um, because of the the travel. But um, it was great because, again, I think I went back to being a, a big fish in a small pond, in that I was I was there now there during a traineeship, feeling like, you know, I, if I played my best, I would win most of the time. And there was, you know, there was a number of good golfers playing there, whereas, and again, probably get into this a little bit later, um, but a big fish in a small pond is when I played my best golf. Yeah, right. So, um, so you like to stand out? Um, well... I don't know what it is. It's an interesting one, though, because it's something that I learned, um, you know, just just off cuff that that's, you know, how I play, when I played my best golf and, and what happened. So, um, you know, confidence is a big thing, and I think definitely when my confidence was up is when I played my best golf. And, you know, that's what happened with most people. But um, so I played well through my traineeship, Um my my study was good through my traineeship. I didn't earn a lot of money through my traineeship, and um, it was you know it came to a 
the end of my traineeship and I had a great last year. I played solid. My grades were good. Um, I won the Australian Trainee of the Year in my final year. Um, you know, again, and that little things like that make you feel better about yourself and I wanted to go out and play. And even something like that made me feel, you know, like that I could go out and, and play and you know, be recognised. But I, th- I think it also meant that I had something behind me as well that, you know, worst case scenario, within the industry I knew people that, you know, whether it be in the golf industry or whatever, that uh, I certainly, you know, had skills to be able to do other things rather than just, you know, play golf. Did you like the coaching aspect of? Um, I liked the coaching aspect, um, but I couldn't see myself coaching twelve hours a day, hmm. five days, six days a week. Um, yep. So certainly limited um, number of people in coaching. Yeah, I enjoyed, you know, passing on my knowledge to people, and and I still do in a way that you know, even through my fittings now, to be able to help people out and give them. You know, some advice, knowing what I know. Um, yeah, it's good. So tournaments. Yeah. So you had a you, you had a little bit of a go at playing some tournaments, did you not? After your time as a yeah. yeah. So my last when I finished my last year, I had exemptions on the on the main or on the secondary tour. So I went out and played on the the Von Nida tour, which was the secondary tour, the Tier Two tour uh, in Australia, and I played pretty solid actually i um you know, i i played played well towards the end of the year and made enough money to be able to keep that status and and play tournaments i played a lot of pro ams um and again i'd played some pro ams through my last year of my traineeship and started to feel like i could compete there um and then started to play well um so that was 2006 my first year out i played solid you know, all through uh, 2007. Um, again, I I felt confident. I felt like I belonged there. Um, and the same on the Von Nida tour, on the secondary tour, that I felt like I belonged and I had some really good results um, on the Von Nida tour. I had um, a couple of top fives um, and then had a win uh, on the Von Nida tour in South Australia uh, and won the... Uh, Victorian Pro-Am Order of Merit in that year as well. So I kind of, you know, at that stage felt like I could, you know, compete with everybody there um, and was competing. And then, you know, in Australia, you get limited chances to play main tour events, the the, the Australian PGA, Australian Open, um, and the Australian Masters were basically the three tournaments where you could make your money. Um, and I played poorly in all of them. I played okay in one Australian P, uh, Australian Masters, but poorly in the Open and the and the PGA. And again, probably a small fish in a big pond. Mm. Didn't play as anywhere near as well as I did in Von Nider Tour events when I was a a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Yeah, and I, I was never the big. I was never the biggest fish. But um, was definitely, you know, I was able to, to finish on the top 10 of the Order Merit in the, on the Von Nida Tour three years in a row, um, meaning that I was playing well in those tournaments and doing the same sort of thing, winning a, um, a Pro-Am 
Order of Merit and finish in the top 10 the other years as well, whereas on the in the main tour in Australia, really just couldn't break through to make enough money to make it worthwhile to stay out there. Interesting, and something's just come into my head. And, you know, knowing you, you know, as well as I know you now and knowing your personality and the, and the type of guy that you are now, and I think back then, do you think this... Per, the, the personality type has a bit of an influence on, you know, that big fish, small pond type performance way of performing versus the, you know, small fish in the big pond. You know, is there an alignment to sort of the type of person you are that, you know, drives you to perform better in one environment or another? Because I can, obviously the PGA Tour being the, the, the pinnacle and the ultimate, you know, you hear all these different anecdotes around, you know, what people have to do mentally to make it at that level. Is there something in that, you know, like it was. Yeah. It's funny because I see myself as a jovial person, especially yeah. off the golf course. Yep. Um, on the golf course, I, I was a bit of a grinder, mm-hmm. right? Not that, not practicing a lot, but you know, I was never the tallest, strongest, longest hitter. I knew my game. I knew how to get the ball around the golf course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting and, and I've, you know, I've sat down at times and tried to work out, you know, why didn't I play well? Why did I play well from, you know, the, the usually I played my best golf from March through to July, right? And I tried to replicate things to try and change that because you need to play well from October through to February. Mm. That's what you used to have to do. Um, so... Yeah, I am not sure. I'm not sure whether when you are a jovial person and you're not the the best, whether that makes it harder for you to perform. Mm. But I certainly had problems with my driver more than anything else. Um, you know, and I'm not sure if you've seen me hit driver off the deck, but it's something that I sometimes I still do. Um, it, it then became a bit of a go-to when I needed to hit driver off the deck that I could do it mm-hmm. as a as a fairway finder. So even when I was playing well that I could still bring that that out. Um and um yeah there was times when I played on tour that I struggled with driver. There was times on tour when I was driving it really well. Yeah. Um but I tended to drive it and it's funny because I've gone to and played some courses that I played pro ams at and thought, geez, I hit driver down here? Wow. I must have been driving it good. Yeah, right. and, you know, now I go, this is a four iron hole. Yeah. <laughs> Why was I eating driver over those trees? So the time comes when you make that decision that, you know, tour life is probably not going to work for me for the next stage of my life. What happens then? Yeah, so I had a, a three-year exemption from when I won and pretty much after that finished. So three-year exemption on the secondary tour? Uh, on the main tour. On the main tour. So yep. the, the win in the secondary tour gives yep. you an exemption on the main tour. Yep. So you didn't have to go through qualifying. No. So, no. No so, more peninsula, no. you know, four-day qualifiers. Or no. Whatever. No. Cool. No, nothing like that. So um, so then I knew, and basically my goal was if I'm not playing on a main tour somewhere else in the world after this time, then I need to do something else. I was right. making enough money to get by. Mm-hmm. Um, I had three kids. So en- enough money to get by, but not enough money to get forward. There's always that carrot hanging in front of you that if you have a good week here, yeah. you can have, be on the European tour. You know, you win the Australian PGA, 
you go and have a European tour card and then anything can happen. So that carrot's always there. You've got to know when the carrot's too far away or when the carrot's rotten. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and so I still loved golf too. Like, to, you know, I always said to people, even at my last year of playing on tour, if I won $100 million in Tats Lotto, I would still be out playing on tour. Yeah. Right? It wasn't like it was a chore. Yeah. You know, I loved it. Um, and so then you know, I finished playing and then um, I think 2012, um, yeah, 2011, midway through 2011, I started working at Brighton Golf Course. I had some mates who were working out there. Um, and so I was doing some work out there and doing some junior clinics and uh and filling in coaching when those guys weren't around. And that became um again did. it was it was a bit of a, it was just a stopgap so yeah. for probably 6 months to to 12 months um to just to be there. Um and then about 3 years later uh Trav said to me, "Tim, if you're still here in 6 months, I'm going to sack you. <laughs> Go and do something else." Um, so, uh, and, and one of your mates, Jace, Jason Louie was at Cobra Puma Golf at that stage and an opportunity had come up and, you know, he contacted me and said, you know, I think you should apply for the role. I think it'd be good for you. So, um, you know, I applied for a role, uh, with Cobra Puma Golf and again, I was selling the product, uh, at Brighton and I knew it and I loved it. Um, and I thought, you know, moving into a territory manager, sales rep role for me seemed like a logical move in that yep. I knew product, yep. I knew people, yep. and I liked dealing with people. Yeah. Um, you know, and I remember uh, Christian, when he spoke to me about, and during the interview process, asked me what sort of territory manager I thought I would be and, you know, what I would do. And I said, well, I've always tried to develop relationships with people and work the relationship rather than trying to sell people things. Um, and I think, you know, when you have a good relationship with people and you're honest with them and you're, I'm trying to help their business, I think that, you know, they see that as well. In business and in life, man, that's how it works. Yeah. Let's just go back one step for a sec. We'll go back to Cobra Puma in a second, but let's go back to, um, Brighton. Now there's a guy that works out there or worked out there or existed out there. I'm not sure if it's a myth, a legend, (laughs) Harry Hoselfinder. Harry Hoselfinder. Do you know Harry Hoselfinder? Apparently, I yes, I do. I know Harry very well. Um, How did Harry Hoselfinder come about? Harry Hoselfinder is my alter ego, and um, you're the first podcast guest that has an alter ego too. By the way, I love it. Okay, um, so I'll give it a plug. But if you if you have a look at the Brighton Golf Academy Facebook page, uh, you'll be able to find. Harry, Harry Hoselfinder's videos. And basically, it's all started from the members complaining there wasn't enough sand in the bunkers. Typical complaint. Every golf course. Every complaint. golf course, there's not enough sand in the bunkers. And or too much. Yeah, no, they never get the complainer too much. Yeah, right. Um, there's never enough. So Sandbelt Golf Course is traditionally a obviously firm base and not a lot of sand, but the right technique will get the ball out. So again, from the AIS, from Ross Herbert, we used to hit bunker shots with our four iron. So I went out to the into this bunker with a member. I'd lost my shit and said, come out with me. So I took a seven iron out there, put a ball down in the bunker and hit it out with the seven iron. 
I said, there seems to be enough sand in this bunker. And he said, oh, well, you know, that's because, you know, you're doing this. And I said, so I went out and I grabbed a four iron. And I put a four iron in the bunker and I got it out of the bunker with a four iron. And then I picked up the rake and said I could probably get it out with the rake. So I hit it with the, you know, the, um, the teeth part of the rake and the ball came out of the bunker and didn't go really where I wanted it to. And I said, you know what, I can probably get it out with the handle of the rake too. So I turned the rake around and hit it out with the handle. The guy didn't know what to say and it was just kind of just a bit off the cuff. Um, so from there, we started to, to mix it up a bit, the Harry Hosel Finder, and just do some, some funny videos. But I know I did one with that, um, another a video of, of me hitting it out with, I think, a broom handle. So with no broom on it, but just with a broom handle. Um, and then we just started, well, every time it rained at Brighton and there was no one on the golf course, we had nothing to do. So we'd get out and do another video and... This was before trick shots and Instagram I, I, became. I'm glad you said that because I was just about to say this is this is well before, you know, the Brian brothers, Tanya Tare, you know, any of those guys doing trick shots, you know, for a living. Now, you're out there grinding away, <laughs> grinding away, setting the tone <laughs> with your pants, <laughs> with my pants pulled up too high, with my hat on backwards, talking like an idiot. It was your stick, and it's classic. It's it's, uh, it's amazing how many people still come up to me today, and still tag me in things on Facebook. Harry Hoselfinder, the Hoz is back. So if you if you know your social media, you you'll, you will know Golf Gods, and you know they're one of the biggest golf social media entities in the globe. Um, Australian guys, mind you, they picked up your video recently, fairly recently. Yeah. yeah. So I redid it again last year. So you re reposted the same video? No, or no, redid I, it? I redid the whole video again. So, I was I was out seeing Travis um, as as his territory manager, and um, we had our meeting. And then he said to me, he said, "We should do more of the Hosel Finder videos." I said, "Well, why don't we just do the the rake in the bunker again?" So we went out, and I hit a couple of shots, four shots with the the bunker rake, um, and we posted one. And then Golf Gods, they posted it. And yeah. I remember I was actually um, in Benalla, and I reckon the cricket must have been during the Perth test. It's just off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> I was with my brother, and I was sitting down looking at it, um, and it just the view, the number of views just kept going up and up and up and up. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? I had people from all over the world sending me messages about it, people who I knew, who I'd played with in pro-ams. And, um, and I'd shared it with a couple of people, uh, a couple of the footballers that, that I look after, the Puma athletes, and they loved it. And then they saw it on social media and thought it was hilarious that uh, it had gone viral. So um <laughs> It was unbelievable just watching it because I tuned in as well and just watched the views just go up in the, not the the hundreds, but the thousands upon thousands on an hourly and daily basis. I think, I remember looking at it, it was like 400,000 views or something like that. It was just phenomenal. Yeah. And then um, Barstool Sports in America posted it. They <laughs> um, didn't give me any cred, but oh, really? um, no, because they got it from someone else and um, they posted it Boom, and Barstool Sports, you should credit. They had just over 2 million views on Barstool Sports alone. 
So then people kept tagging me in everywhere, and I was thought, wow, we're that's pretty you, funny. We've got to get you more cred for this. <laughs> I've got enough credibility for it too. <laughs> trust me. Well, you are fairly well known as Harry Hoselfinder and the bunker, the, the rake out of the bunker guy. So, um, well done on that. <laughs> it's it's uh, we have a laugh about it for a <laughs> I remember trying it. I I think I sent you the yeah, video. Yeah, I've seen, seen the video. I nearly broke two ribs. Yeah, because because certainly need to open up the rake end of the rake. Yeah, the rake end of the bunker. Uh, the, sorry, the the rake end of the rake to smash me in the ribs by trying to get the ball out. So it's uh, and, and I like to do a few little you know flicky tricky juggly shots, and uh, I couldn't do it. It was pretty much to prove that with the right technique, yeah, out of a bunker you can hit the sand. And the momentum of the sand will take the ball out of the bunker, which that's yeah, what it does, right? Shot, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's what it was. Just, you know, it's actually any, not that hard. Any other trick shots in your repertoire, mate? My favourite one, I posted my favourite one a little bit later. I think Golf God put that up there as well, which was um, the the plugged lie with the toe of the putter. You look, I, yeah, yeah. You, you look confused like you haven't seen it, but... Um, yeah, from a plug lie, toe the toe the putter down with an old putter, especially. But um, and it comes out better than any other way to hit a plug lie bunker shot. Plug lie, there you go, people. Plug lie, toe of the putter. He's picking up all the tips here today. Ping answer style putter though. I yeah. I used it in a pennant match and hit an absolute ripper one day. Won the hole. Yeah. Oh no, half the hole got it up and down to half the hole. Oh, that would have made your opponent <laughs> just be cringing and bleeding. On this guy just hit out of a. <laughs> Punker with a putter and halved the hole. It would have killed him. Did you win that match? Uh, if it was a pennant match, I would say yes. Yeah, yeah. I didn't lose a lot of match play matches. <laughs> Silly question. Tend to get into people's heads. Now, mate, back to back to the world of um, you know, corporate golf, and now working for one of the globe's biggest brands. You know, one of the top top five, top four, top five, um, whichever way you look at it. They're one of the big ones. Cobra Puma Golf. Great products, great people. Tell us, you know, what's Cobra Puma Golf standing for at the moment, mate? Well, you know, the, the good thing about it is that one of the reasons I wanted to work there is because they were a fun brand and they are a fun brand. You know, Ricky came out and he looked like a witch's hat in his first year on tour with orange pants, orange hat, orange shirt. But he was loud and he was having fun and that was what, you know, we had different coloured drivers cool things at work was our motto um, and our technology has always been I believe ahead of everybody else that we've come out with things um, and we're still a brand that isn't afraid to do things differently and, and have fun um, and you know when you're working and you know if you can have a bit of fun while you're working it makes things a lot better um, so you know we make great product there's a, a lot of loyalists from the early, late 90s, early 2000s who were, you know, Cobra men when Norman was roaming the globe with Cobra. Um, you know, and there's some big companies out there now who, who are doing a great job of making product and marketing product. And, you know, I think our marketing's getting better. And, you know, when we're getting the club out there and people are getting in their hands, they're certainly seeing the quality of the product. So, um, you know, for me, it's a brand that's that's fun um, and enjoyable to work for as well. Trying things 
different and doing new things. I think you mentioned that, maybe not verbatim, but uh, you know, certainly you've got behind one of the top guys in the world of golf at the moment. You know, I think that if the world rankings uh, would suggest that he's, there's only three people in front of him, Bryson DeChambeau uh, and the one length product. You know, you put a lot of emphasis in making that product, obviously, you know, on the back of his endorsement through um, being a brand partner. What's one length all about, mate? There's still a lot of people out there that don't, that know as much as Bryce and DeChambeau uses it, but they yep. don't understand the concept. Uh, they don't understand how the clubs actually work, which is one of the big things to helping someone understand the one length concept, I believe. Yeah. So tell us what one, what is one length and how does it work? Well, I'm going to start by saying when I, when I first learned about one length, I thought it was a good idea. When I knew that we were going to have Bryson as our next poster boy, I thought it was a ridiculous idea because I didn't think he was good enough to play how he has, right? I thought that, you know, he didn't have a tour card then. He'd played okay, but he has played, his last year has been phenomenal, right? Take away one link, take away anything. His last year has been phenomenal. Um, and as you said, he's number four in the world and he's playing as good as anyone in the world. He's putting great. He's putting with the flag in, which is ridiculous. But, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, so, you know, the question about one length is it kind of simplifies things a lot. Um, and, and I say this when I'm talking to people, when I'm trying to sell one length in is if golf clubs were all one length as this one length set is, and I tried to sell you a variable length set, you would laugh me out of the store. Yeah. If I said to you, so from the seven iron, I'm going to start getting longer with the shaft. I'm going to change the lie angle and I'm going to change the head weight and make the, the heads lighter as I get longer irons. And then when we go into the shorter irons, I'm going to make the club shorter, but I'm going to adjust the, the weight of the head and make it heavier to counteract for the, the shortness of length. You'd say to me, why are you doing that? All right, and so that's you know that's how I tell the story of one length is they're all the same length, they're all the same lie, they're all the same weight. So the only thing that affects how far the ball goes is the loft. Now people think that we need to change the loft of it to change things, but in reality, a variable set of golf clubs changes the length and then changes the weight to counteract for that length. So when they're all the one length, they don't have to. So it, it allows, and I think some people who have been playing a long time to get the concept, it may become harder um, because to swing a four iron like a seven iron or to swing a wedge like a seven iron, but especially people that haven't played a lot, you give them a one length set and they don't know any different. Mm. And when I'm fitting, I don't tell them. I just I screw a, a nine iron head onto the shaft and say, "Here, hit this one. It'll probably go higher than that seven iron," and it does, <laughs> and it goes twenty yards shorter. And then I give them the five iron; it goes twenty yards longer, and they go, "Yeah, that's felt pretty good. That went longer." You'd have to think if if golf was invented today, you know, if we were going out there to invent it to the range behind us, I'd be pretty sure that golf would be invented with one length clubs, exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's right. It's, it's funny. And Norman said the other day, 
uh, he quoted that if he could go back again and have his time again, he'd use one length. Yeah. It makes sense. It's just us getting our brains around what it actually does. And you now you've picked up the one length hybrid and it's like, it looks like a kid's club, but it's still seven iron length. It's not, you know, kid's club length. So it just feels because we've played so long with our less lofted clubs being longer and our more lofted clubs being shorter, you know, it's getting our mindset around, you know, playing it a little bit differently. Still one of the, I'm a driving iron fan, as you know, and uh, and I've used a few of them and have a couple of different brands that I that I sort of flick between, but still to this day, one of the best ones that I've used, it's your relatively recent release, the uh, King Utility. So yep. it's a, the only adjustable um, driving iron concept, but playing that in the one length, four iron at seven iron length with the, the flexibility of the head um, in the utility, the weighting of the head in the utility, whatever whatever you've done to it in, inside there, uh, it's just phenomenal. It's the longest, easiest to hit four iron that you'll ever pick up in your life. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I tried to make something like that um, when I was playing on tour to play a couple of the golf courses that were really windy. Mm-hmm. And then I basically tried to make a, a five iron length two iron. Um, and it kind of worked and kind of didn't work. And when one length came out, I understood why, why? it didn't work out. So what, what, why is that? Well, because the head weight yes. of a two iron yes. has to be lighter than the head weight of a seven iron. So it was too light. Yes. So I actually, I know I added some lead tape to try and get it up, the swing weight up. And also I couldn't get the lie angle right as well because, um, you know, it was obviously too flat. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's something, and again, we sold a lot of one-length utilities and hybrids to people that weren't using one-length irons. Yeah, right. So, which has been, you know, interesting to see what's happened and people get their hands on them like yeah. you have yeah. and go, gee, this actually feels good. It feels yeah. comfortable. Yeah, it's um, so easy to use. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it was something like it was over 20% of our sales last year, one-length irons. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's a big number. It's a big number. Speaking of sales, so you're just on the eve of an exciting new product launch. We may as well talk a little bit about that. What have we got coming out? Yeah. Um, so the new F9 launch, uh, January 18. So new driver, fairway, hybrid, and irons. Um, and it's a great range. It's a great range. The driver's a killer. Um yeah, Bryson's won with it already. Uh, Ricky's put it into play straight away. Lexi's won with it on tour. So, um, you know, it's a great product. And again, we're gonna. There's definitely going to be a a good range of drivers out on the market this year. Um, and this is going to compete with all of them. It's it's a great driver. Um, and you know, take cool technology in it. And we spoke about it before. And getting the best of both worlds. People have either done you know, a good aerodynamic driver or a good CG located driver. This is the first one to hit the market that has great aerodynamics and great CG location. We'll see if we can put our chat about the F9 driver at the end of the podcast. So if you want to stay on and assuming that we can, no reason why we couldn't, um, assuming that we do, it'll be on at the tail end of this. So we'll finish the podcast and then then Tim and I will talk about the, uh, the new F9 driver hit it a couple of times now like it's, it's not released yet it's acoustically sounds awesome 
goes, from what I can see, very, very well. Um, I haven't done a full test in the numbers myself, but uh, one of the pros that I know and work in and around hit it, and his numbers were fantastic and hit, you know, just gained ball speed and, and yardage straight away, you know, and basically ordered one and put it straight in his bag. So um, it's going to be an exciting time because, as you mentioned, Timmy, there's a number of new drivers coming out all at the same time. So ours is coming out first. Yours is coming out first. <laughs> Just clear that up. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, yours is coming out first, but there's a number of new drivers coming out from uh, competitors all around the same, similar time. So it's an exciting time for the golf industry if you're looking at improving your game and getting some uh, new gear and you know looking for those, you know, Tents. I don't know how many tents you want to put onto it, but you know, if, if you're looking for better dispersion, lower spin, some more yardage, and and not mind-blowingly on any of the brands, but the new product is, um, you know, going to be fantastic for that. It, just on that, you know, like from driver to driver, you know, new model to new model. There's always an improvement, but how much? You know, people people ask, you know, is it is it worth the you know, the, 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 the five, six, seven, eight hundred dollar investment, you know, depending on, on club, what do you get when you know, how much can you improve the best thing that was the best thing eighteen months ago? How can you make it even the even better thing? Yeah, it's a good question. I what I've noticed is is every three years there's definitely a big improvement. Year on year there's an improvement. So, you know, from F eight, if you've got an F eight driver how big an improvement are you going to get to F9? There's going to be an improvement. But from F6 driver to F9 driver, there's a huge improvement. All right? And generally people will change their drivers you know, every two or three years. So, you know, and that's what happens is if you're getting a, a 2% increase every year, mm. then, um, you know, that's going to not make a huge difference. But over three years... You're then getting a six percent discount uh, improvement, which will make a difference. So, um, you know, this driver, as I said, the benefit of this one is that you're getting best of both worlds. So, it's definitely a huge improvement on F8, um, especially in our spin numbers, mm. um, and you know, CG location has been a huge improvement. So, aerodynamically, it's it's improved a little bit, but the big difference is going to be in spin numbers. And, and that's why, you know, when you're talking about Chris, Chris really spun the F8 too much. This one here, uh, he's going to get it right back down. And he loved our um, the LTD, mm -hmm. King Limited. He yep. loved that driver. And that was because of the spin numbers. Aerodynamically, it wasn't a great driver, but spin, it was great. And this is, we've tried to get the spin numbers and the CG similar to what that was. So sometimes that's counter productive isn't it you know like if we go back a few years you know you had high cg uh, sorry low low cg you know so yep. weight back and low but that had a counterproductive influence on spin so it was traditionally a little bit higher spin so you know to get a driver that is low cg low and back you know to make that head as stable as it can be coming through impact and to combine that with low spin is you know really a game changer really groundbreaking stuff because you, know, you yeah. get the forgiveness without compromising you know, ball flight, spin, launch, um, and all of that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And that's what you're trying to do is trying to find the best of both worlds because because there's limits on how fast you can make the face. You need to make sure that you can make the whole club playable, fast, forgiving, and also adjustable 
to then fit into different people as well. Had a look at the new F9Is. They look pretty special as well. So the thing, and you can tell me, is that the Cobra helicopter coming in to pick you up for the next appointment? <clears throat> I thought that was your helicopter to yes. take you to another round of golf. <laughs> um, the thing that stuck out with the F9 irons is, you know, when you pick it up in your hand, it looks like, you know, medium game improvement. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it. You'll correct me, I know. But as soon as you put it down to a dress, you know, it looks like that better player's iron. It looks very blade-like in its appearance. You know, the satin finish is fantastic. But you can just see a hint of the, the sole sticking out. And when you can see a little bit of sole sticking out from behind, you know, that says that it's going to be a very compliant, you know, club with its turf interaction. Um, so it's got low CG to get the ball launching nice and high. But just at a dress, it just looks like a really strong, good player's iron. I think... I think you're right. I think from the bottom, it looks like a super game improvement. And from the top, it looks like a player's iron. Yeah. Um, and I think that really wide, wide looking sole, it's actually not the sole. It's obviously built around the sole. So yeah. the playable part of the sole is very small. Yes. But then having everything else wider for stability, for launch, for those things. Um, but then the playability of the sole. So turf interaction is great. And you know, and it looks really, you know, like you said, the the finish on it makes it look like a better club as well. Um, and I think you know, when we had testing with it, when we did with all of our uh, reps during our conference, we had great results in terms of higher launch, higher spin, more ball speed, which is a great combination in an iron. I can't wait to have a go of them because you know I'm a sort of feel and visual sort of guy um, with my clubs, as many people are. And if those two boxes are ticked, then for me, it's usually going to equate to a quality ball strike and, you know, better shots. So, you know, assuming that there's a lot of people out there that are like that, um, it's going to be a, a good one to get in their hands. And I can't wait to, um, to help with that. Mate, so we're nearly at the end of time, but, you know, there's another area of your life which we should touch on because you've been very kind in, in giving us a very deep insight into the world of golf how you came to it and you know i hope if you're listening to it maybe you're a young fella or a girl young guy um thinking about a career in professional golf maybe you're a parent of a, a fledgling golf you know star you know this is a real life story about what it takes to get to the top level and um and some of the paths and some of the journeys and some of the highs and some of the lows that that happen along that way because you know clearly not everyone is you know, a PGA superstar, uh, it's a tough road. And Timmy's journey is one of the highest class and quality. And um, so hopefully you can get, you know, some learning out of that and pass that on. But cricket was your other sport. You still play a lot of cricket, more cricket than golf. And ranked in the top 100, is that correct? Well, I'm glad... Be, be, be I'm, honest, be I'm honest. Glad, I'm glad we're getting onto a subject that I... Love now. Um, so when I stopped playing full-time golf, I went back and played cricket because I wasn't able to play cricket while I was playing golf. Um, I would have loved to have gone and played some football. I actually played a couple of games and filled in uh, with a couple of mates, um, but too old, too slow, too fat to play footy. Um, so cricket has always been a big love of mine, um, sport. And I, I go to a lot of sporting events uh, with my kids and 
go to the cricket, go to the football. Um, probably the only spot I don't go to is golf. Um, but I don't, uh, see, I don't see it many Melbourne City games, mate. Uh, Melbourne City, I don't know them. They are oh, their Melbourne victories. Poor little brother. Easy. Okay. Come on, let's finish this. We're going to be sponsoring <laughs> you in a minute soon. So, um, so yeah. So back playing cricket. Um, I played at uh, at one of the courses, uh, one of the clubs in in Brighton called Cluton, um, and struggled when I first went back there. Got better. Started to understand how to play cricket again, and was loving it. Um, and then a new I suppose style of cricket the 2020 became in fad there's a, a competition called last man stands which was started in England it's a two hour game of 2020 cricket five ball overs eight guys in the field play after work or play on Sundays um, and I started playing a dandenong competition and was just loving it and a couple of mates that we went out and played with I was then started playing on a Sunday as well. So I was playing cricket on Wednesdays, Saturdays and Sundays and my normal cricket on Saturdays. Uh, and Last Man Stands has about 200,000 registered people. They have live stats, live games, live updates. Um, and I started to make some runs and make some runs pretty quickly and somehow slipped into the top 100 in the world of the batting rankings uh, out of 200,000 people. So um, I was around the. Hey, you, somehow you're you're a scoring machine. I I, I've, <laughs> I looked you up and looked at some of the results and some of the score scores and the and the numbers that you were putting together in those little short stint in, in, innings and they were phenomenal. You were hitting like five sixes on the trot. Well, it's how I kind of play. Ones, <laughs> fours, and sixes are my go. Um, and I hit a lot of golf shots, so I need the ball. Actually, I'm not going to say this in just in case someone bowling to me is going to listen, but <laughs> I do like the ball pitched up outside off stump and then I can actually hit it like a golf shot. Um, but, yeah, I, I've loved it, um, batting and bowling. So inside the top 100 in the world in the rankings, and uh, that was that was a good achievement. I was happy with that. Um, and, I, and I love it. I Again, I up at, this year I was playing... Uh, a lot of fun sport. Uh, my kids are getting older, and I played a couple of games with my son um, of Last Man Stands, and you know it's great to actually play something that you love. And I don't hate golf, and I don't, but I don't, I don't want to go out there and play all the mm. time. Yeah. Um, so I, I was playing some indoor golf with some friends um, in one of the competitions. So I was playing, you know, golf on a Wednesday night cricket on a Tuesday night, cricket on a Sunday, cricket on a Saturday uh, and touch footy uh, on a Tuesday night. So, um, yeah, I had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, Saturday and Sunday at one stage playing different sports. I got told that I had to cut a couple back. (laughs) (laughs) How many people would be ranked from Australia, from the local... Last Man Stands comp within top 100? Um, I think there is about 15 or 20 in the top 100. So in the top 20 batsmen in Australia for that, var- that for, variety of the competition? Yeah, for that for that competition, um, yeah, I got into the, the top 20 in Australia, which is good. Um, we won 
we won the Melbourne final, won the state final, and actually went up and played the Australian Championships on the Gold Coast as well. Our team did. So we had a strong team with, uh, you know, and these guys are, are not, you know, they're not professional cricketers and they're not guys who have played professional. Um, but it's just, it's a fun game that, you know, allows you to play and, and enjoy it. Um, you know, these guys, there's a few ex-footballers that are now playing. Well, actually one, Max Gorn was playing and, um, you know, it, it's good to see, you know, people of all abilities be able to play and enjoy it as well. In all seriousness, with the way that the BBL's gone this year, um, with the clash of the international series and, and not a lot of our as many internationals playing, any chance for call-up to the Gades, mate? Oh, you're a big Gades man. I know I've, you're on their radar. I, I hear that I was close on their radar at one stage. They were they were making inquiries about me. Um Maybe because I kept asking them and sending me emails saying, <laughs> I'm available if you need me. I know Harris and Finch are opening for Australia. We need to make some runs. Um, so there was a couple of responses, Tim, stop emailing, um, right. leave us alone. In fairness to the guides, they did give the opportunity to carry the water. Yeah, I did. I actually I, I did carry the water one day and uh, and got in the rooms after the game um, down there, not because of my cricketing ability, unfortunately, but uh, I was ready to go if they needed me to. I was ready to go. <laughs> you had your bags packed. <laughs> uh, Tim, you, you don't need your bag. Oh, trust me, I might. I might. It sounds like my one ever game of cricket. I turned up in thongs at, at Cessnock, uh, to East Cessnock Oval as a young fella, and they said, we're short. Um, can you play? I said, yeah, I can give you a hand. Well, off you go. You're opening the batting. <laughs> I kid you not. I borrowed someone's shoes, went there and opened the batting. I'd never faced a real cricket ball, and I was facing David Smith, who was the, the, the ducks of the school. He was the soccer player, the rugby league player, the cricket player, the swimmer. He was the best and fastest at everything. And he swung the ball three feet. <laughs> and I'm opening the batting out there on a concrete wicket. It was the scariest moment of my life. Hmm. Yes. Well. No runs. No runs? Yep. Did you get hit? Yep. Yeah. And it hurt. Yeah. They and do I, hurt. And then I had to field. And, and it I, hurts when it hits your and hands. I got, <laughs> and I got hit and hurt. <laughs> I was fielding on the boundary and someone's gone for, you know, the the hook shot, the ball came at me at six foot height from the bat to my chest and it knocked me over like a cannonball hitting and it sounded like that as well. And I, that, that, was, that it? was it. Cricket's not for me. I'll stick to golf. Ball's too hard. My son said to me the other day, why do you think they made the ball so hard? Why couldn't they just made it like a tennis ball? Well, at least, you know, like backyard cricket, taped it up, taped yeah. half, oh, that's... half taped up. <laughs> That could be a whole nother podcast if you get into backyard cricket and backyard take the balls cricket. up. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> that was my childhood, trust me. Back. Taping balls up and swinging them as far as you could. Oh, there's more of your famous videos too, Timmy. Jumping, you know, the, the three-hander, no touchy, you know, jumping into the pool catch. Oh, jeez. Yeah. You've seen that one as well. Oh, I've, I've stalked you. I, <laughs> you. You haven't stalked me enough. You didn't ask me about something else as well. Oh, okay. I was 12th man for India in a tour, tour match. They played against Victoria in Benalla in 1991. 12th man for India. I sat on the bench for the whole day carrying the water out. There was two juniors from the district that were got named. I was 12th man for India. I sat on the bench with this young kid, right, <clears throat> who didn't play that day. 
this young kid who was over here over there touring. His name was Sashin Tendulkar. And Ross looks at me like, what? I didn't know Serious? That. Serious. There's yeah. actually an article on it. Uh, Golf Victoria wrote an article. You'll find it in a Golf Victoria magazine somewhere. Can you? Okay. See if we can find it. So it's late in this podcast. I'll just remind you, you've just heard a podcast from someone who sat on the bench as 12 men for the Indian cricket team alongside ahead of Sachin Tendulkar. Hmm. That's phenomenal, Tim. There you go. You've just you've just gone up another another <laughs> level. Another level. Another level. Wait, that's great. No, I don't think many people are going to top that. <laughs> Mate, I think on that note, we just might uh, wind it up. It's fairly warm. We were sitting in the uh, My Love of Golf podcast studio, mobile studio. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate all of your insights. Um, if anyone wants to check you out, they can find you on social media at which one do we look at for now? When we oh, do we just go to Wise Guy Tim? Wise Guy Tim. So or is, Wise Guy Golf, either one of the two. Instagram, Wise Guy Tim, Wise Guy Golf. Hit Timmy up. You'll see the examples of his uh, videos that have <laughs> made him a global sensation. Um, Instagram wasn't invented when he sat alongside Sachin Tendulkar, but he would have been even bigger. We wouldn't have been sitting here in the My Love of Golf podcast studio. Don't worry. Are we allowed to say it's a Nissan podcast? <laughs> sponsored by Nissan. <laughs> they gave me a free car park once. <laughs> no, not sponsored by anyone. But uh, we're all welcome. No, seriously. <laughs> um, appreciate your time. I love uh, having you around uh, the industry. I love uh, having you around as my you know, golfing buddy. And... Um, Really appreciate it, mate. Thanks. Uh, thanks for your time. I appreciate uh, you inviting me in here. Mate, you were great. I love it. Thanks, man. Thanks, all the best. Guys. All the best for the F9 launch. Thank you. So, Timmy, we've just hit the, uh, the brand new F9. What are you going to tell us about it? Tell us what Cobra have done with this new, stunning, exciting looking product. Well, I think it's a, trying to get the best of both worlds. We've, we've either had really good uh, aerodynamics or really good CG location. Um, and first time we've ever brought a driver to market that has the best of both. So uh, it's always very hard when you get the CG location right, the aerodynamics usually go out the window. This one here, they've been able to save weight on the top, still keep this high, which good aerodynamics, but then to put in this speed back, which is actually gets the, the CG in a great location for good ball speed, good control. So you get good club head speed and good ball speed, um, which is, you know, again, first to bring to market in a great driver. And I'm sure you'll see people trying to do things like this and lower the center of gravity to get this weight as low as possible. Um, so pretty much combined two drivers in one. Uh, and it feels great as well. You obviously just hit it then. It, it feels, the feel off the, the club head off the, the milled face really feels solid and it's a different sound. It's not tinny and high pitched. It really feels like you're getting some feedback and you know, you can smash it. Milled face, mate. It's a question that I get asked a lot. Tell me about the milled face. Just means that every face can be made exactly the same. And we don't have to allow for tolerances. So uh, the rules allow for a tolerance when you're making the head. So 
you know, you stay back from the tolerance to make sure that it doesn't become illegal. With this, we can go right to the limit and make sure that everyone is identical. Um, so it just means that every face is perfect and we don't have to allow for tolerances. Now, aerodynamics is obviously an important part of any driver these days. What are you doing up top? Yeah, so uh, the aero trips on top, we've actually smoothed out the top line here, which meant that we can move the aero trips a little bit further back, which again helps the keep the, the air close to the club head on the way through, um, as well as the power ridges through here. So again, anytime you can have a high crown, the air, the air will stick to it, giving you better aerodynamics. And uh, again, the raised tail through here as well, keeps that air sticking to it, better aerodynamics. It's a beautiful looking driver. So that's the black and the white version? That's the black and avalanche, yeah. Black and avalanche. What are the other colours we're going to have? So we'll have uh, the black and yellow, which will be the hero colour. See Ricky and Bryson and Lexi using that already. Um, it definitely stands out a bit more. Uh, this one's a little bit more subdued for the guy that probably doesn't want to stand out as much on the course. Um, I'm sure you'll have black and yellow because you like standing out. <laughs> you laugh, but you know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so mate, the weights, so you've got some, the movable weight, now yeah, that's obviously to impact CG, but yeah. what, what have you got, how much movable weight? Yeah, so 14 gram movable weight from either front or back, um, obviously we're getting around about 800 um, revs difference between front and back weight, so the further back, a little bit more spin, a little bit more control, further front, a little bit less spin, a little bit less control, but obviously higher ball speed as well from the, the front weight. The movable weight's increased? Uh, yeah, so uh, we've gone from 12 gram to 14 grams, so an extra two grams. So does that mean you've made um, weight savings elsewhere? Uh, weight savings elsewhere uh, in terms of, we've got a bigger crown, so carbon fiber crown, which now wraps around the club. So rather than it attaching to the club head here and the top of the club head, it wraps around, saving weight, which allowed us to then put in the speed back, which you can see there obviously lowers this bit here. So lower than the skirt, brings it down. Um, so weight saving from here is able to make that and increase the weight on the bottom. It looks sick, what about shafts? What are we doing, doing shaft wise? Uh, well, we're trying to find shafts that are on trend at the moment. So um, the Fuji Atmos Blue, the Atmos Black, uh, which are on-trend shafts. We, we did a lot of them as upcharges last year because people wanted it. It's a two-spec shaft, so it's a, a genuine aftermarket shaft. Um, we're doing the uh, this helium shaft, which is a lighter weight shaft for the guys with a little bit slower swing speed. Um, and we are doing the hazardous smoke shaft, which again is a, a shaft that's on-trend at the moment. People are using it. It's a, a great shaft. Hazardous would ideally suit when you're fitting, who's gonna who's gonna be a hazardous sort of guy? Yeah, well, traditionally we've had the hazardous yellow, which is a little heavier, lower spinning, lower launching. The hazardous smoke is a little bit higher launching, a little bit higher spinning. We've replaced the hazardous yellow with the Atmos Black. So the Atmos Black is our lowest launching, lowest spinning shaft. And then hazardous smoke, which is the next one up. So a little higher launching, little higher spinning. The Atmos Blue, which is like a mid-mid and then uh, that helium shaft, which the helium shaft is a, a high launch, high spinning shaft. And released when, mate? When are we seeing those in, in uh, 
stores and available around the, around the country? Worldwide release date 18th of January. Okay. Which means that we'll launch it ahead of America because we're 12 hours ahead of them. <laughs> you guys at Cobra think of everything. That's <laughs> how we roll. That's <laughs> how we roll. I mean, um, appreciate your time. It's fantastic to get a little bit of a hit, a little bit of a pre-insight into uh, what I think is going to be one of the drivers uh, of the year, if not the driver of the year. We've hit it in the simulator and the numbers that we've measured are just phenomenal. Um, my guy, Chris McClatchy, was, I think he got like an extra 10, 15 yards, like second hit, you know, just sort of kind of the right shaft for him, just bang, just ball speed up, distance up. So um, let's just hope that that's going to translate into the results for, uh, for everybody who gets one of these bad boys. Sure, with the fitting with you guys, we'll be able to do that. <laughs> mate, thanks for joining us on the uh, My Love of Golf podcast too, mate, because um, I'm sure the people will love you for your knowledge about the Cobra product, but they're going to love you even more when they know a little bit more about the world of Tim Wise, uh, your background, some of your achievements in the golf world, and um, your interests outside of golf, which are, which are plentiful and, and equally as interesting and, uh, and spectacular. That's what I'd say. Spectacular. Probably an over, over, <laughs> overstatement there, but yeah, we'll let them be the judge. <laughs> Let's talk cricket and talk top 100 in the world ranking. How many people can get a top 100 in the world ranking in some form of cricket? Your man here, he's gone quiet because he knows it's true and he's blushing, but it uh, is true. All right, cheers. Oh, is that the, is that the Cobra helicopter? Coming, they're coming, to, coming to get us now. Black and yellow, it's the new colours of the driver. <laughs> <laughs>